expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between, it's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Welcome, welcome, one and all, to episode 118 of the Down and Nerdy podcast, where even after 10 years, Nick, I gotta say, I think Brandon Routh's performance as Superman does come up a bit short. Yeah, I mean, when you look at, at who we've had, I mean, you, here's a question for you, and this is a serious question. Do you think that the reason why people love Christopher Reeve so much was because, I mean, outside of like the actual like, old school Superman, like black and white, old, old Superman show... He was really that personification, I think, of, of of big screen Superman. You think that's why people loved him the most? You think that's because he was actually really, really good? I think it's hard to let go of that. And think about it. With, with Batman, it was a little different because with Batman, we got a legit animated series voice like Kevin Conroy in story. And I'm not saying that Adventures of Superman uh, on the cartoon version wasn't good. I'm just saying it wasn't as iconic as Batman the Animated Series. So people could say, oh, Kevin Conroy is the best Batman. You look at the list of Superman, and so many people came up short or just a little bit short. And then you look at Christopher Reeve and go, yeah, I guess. Yeah. And he was good. I mean, he was wholesome. He was uh, fierce when he needed to be. Other than having Richard Pryor in his arms, I think he did a pretty good job. Well, yeah, I think that, you know, you look at Superman, again, to me, that's just an idea of... You know, and I'm t- you know when you look at the guys who played Superman again, George Reeves back in the day, like that's like going way back. Yeah, that's, that's way that's, back. That's, that's Hollywood land era. You know, so I mean, like in terms of, of movies, Christopher Reeves is really the only person, really, you know, to to bring him to the big screen in the sense to be cast to play Superman, bring him to the big screen. And plus, again, it was the era, it was the times the movies were made, and everything else that was why I think he's highly regarded as like, oh, he is Superman and everything else because he was really the only one and he was the first one to bring it to the big screen whereas with Batman, you know, you're changing guys out every two to three years, mm. you know? Absolutely. I'm James with him alongside. I'm working with one arm, Nick Pataglia. And man, last week was pretty fun talking about secret societies. I got to be honest, when we, were, when we got ready to talk to Van Jensen, I knew we were going to talk about a lot about cryptocracy and I knew we were going to mention The Flash a little bit. What I didn't think I would get was the crazy conspiracy theory stories that he had and the fact that he, he apparently reads the message boards, too. So that was interesting. <laughs> not just that, but him and Venditti, like, sling insults at one another that people, not like they call each other names, but like, hey, somebody called me this. Oh, yeah, well, I, call, I somebody called me this. It's like playing poker with, yeah. with, with message board insults. I mean, don't just feed the trolls. Use the trolls, I guess. Oh, it's like, it's like, I got a, uh, it's like somebody called me a, a shitty writer. Yeah, well, somebody called me a taint. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to. It's like full house compared to like a pair, you know? Yeah, that that's really hard to get past. But I mean, if you haven't gotten Cryptocracy yet, it is out right now from Dark Horse. Make sure you go pick that up. I mean, there's just so many good books out right now. I mean, it's like we're hitting a golden age for comics right now leading into San Diego Comic-Con. So I can't imagine what we're actually going to get at San Diego in a couple of weeks. Well, I mean, you know, for example, our buddy David Sobolov showed off the uh, the Funko SDCC exclusive of Gorilla Garage. Yeah, I'm which... mad about that, by the way. I know, right? 
They got all the good stuff. I mean, come on. I got to go to San Diego to get a Grod Pop? I want a Grod Pop right now. Can you imagine if Grod sold ice cream, what it would be like? Yeah, oh, yeah, I can absolutely imagine what that would be like outside of the convention. It'd be like, be like, Mr. Grod, do you have banana? Grod didn't have no banana. No. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that Grod hates the song Deo? Uh, <laughs> do you I think, think he can even watch Beetlejuice? Well, I think Grodd looks at the Cadbury Eggs commercial with the grill drumming. He's like, "That that could have been him. He could have been, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like a it was a long lost, uh, you know, career goal." And he's like, "Somebody else came in and, and took it from him." You My know? cousin was a little wind up monkey with the symbols back in the back right, in the day. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah. I mean, it's just he's lost out so much. That's probably why he's just so pissed. That's why he's so angry. But we've got a whole lot coming up this week to look forward to. A lot of very interesting nerd news coming up this week, too. Yeah, man. We're going to talk a little bit about Tetris and stuff like that and how that's going to be a sci-fi trilogy. I don't know how they can get sci-fi out of blocks falling and formatting to a screen. But I, I don't know, man. Plus, we have some other nerd news as well. But come next, we have two new comics coming up your way. It's what we're reading here on the Downery Podcast. This is writer Van Jensen, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's that time, boys and girls, where we get out of our long boxes and we discuss what we're reading this week. And James, let me tell you something. When you hear this, what do you think? It's got to be the Lone Ranger, man. Oh, goddamn right it is. And this week... And this week I decided to review The Lone Ranger Green Hornet, number one, of course, from Dynamite. And before I dive into the comic, I actually want to give a little bit of history as to how my fandom of these two characters came to be. My grandfather passed away when I was about 11, 12-ish, before I was a teenager. So my mom and I had to go out to Colorado and you know, clean out his apartment and everything else like that. And my grandmother, who was his second wife actually had these tapes, these rows of cassette tapes. And apparently there were shows that he listened to that she had recorded for him. And, of course, they were the Lone Ranger and they were Green Hornet. And so before I go to bed, I listen to a cassette tape or two or five. Before going to bed, Down, I'd be downstairs at my grandmother's basement because it was a finished basement. My mom and her would be upstairs talking, having coffee or whatever. I'd be downstairs secluded in this bedroom of this basement, just headphones on, old school cassette player, just listening to Lone Ranger and Green Hornet, and that's where my, you know, my, my fandom came from, because it was just interesting, you know, it was like, whenever you hear the theme song, you went nuts, you know, I went, I, I got excited. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, the Green you know, Green Hornet and Kato, and, and, you know, Tonto as well, and it's just like, you know, it was really, really cool, like, to, to hear how shows were done back in the day, and hear these radio shows, and I actually got my interest in pretty much the old school radio dramas. And that's yeah, what I think started I, it. I think I still have my Lone Ranger action figure somewhere from when I was a kid too. And <laughs> I used to watch the show all the time. So I know exactly where you're coming from. I've always been a big Lone Ranger fan. My mom was really into Green Hornet. Right. She my, loved my, Green Hornet. My mom loved Lone Ranger. And, and so this comic, again, it's done by Dynamite. And it's written by Michael Uslan. And the art is done by Giovanni Timpano. And I'll say this. The way this is set up is that it's set in 1936. Now, if people are saying, well, wait a minute, the Lone Ranger was back in the Wild West. Well, yes. The, the Lone Ranger in this is an old man. He's like, picture Clint Eastwood, Gran Torino. Like, he's that old. Okay. And 
here's the thing is that is the Lone Ranger is walking with the Green Hornet's dad. And he's kind of, you know, discussing, hey, my son, he's he's not really with it. You know, he's kind of lazy, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, remember, this is during the time of the Nazis as well. So you got Hitler rising in power. And so it's just kind of like what his the Green Hornet's father has him has Lone Ranger do is kind of like take him under my wing, you know, take him under your wing, kind of give him some guidance in a sense. Well, something happens with the father. And so, you know, you fast forward. This is before the son becomes Green Hornet. You know, this is before he decides to take the reins. And how he decides to take the reins and become the Green Hornet is very interesting. That's going to go into more issue two. But the thing what they do with him is really, really interesting. And what they do with the Lone Ranger is really cool, too. Is Remember how when we talk Arrow, we're like, man, we don't know why they have these flashbacks. And these are so boring. Right. and They mean nothing. The flashbacks in here go back to the 1890s. And they highlight the Lone Ranger when he was younger and everything else. And they set up the main villain in the 1930s, the main gang. So you still get a good piece of classic Lone Ranger, even though he's an old man now. You still get meaningful pieces of what he used to do when he was younger then. Right. And you also get a meaningful number. They're all related. Like, you know, the Green Hornet, you know, and his father, they're like, you know, nephews and great nephews to the Lone Ranger in this. And, and, and so it's just like when you see the the early age Lone Ranger, you see the father as he was, you know, his son's age. And it's kind of like, you know, and stuff like that. And it's really, really interesting. The way this is, is, is scripted and framed is beautiful because it's not too much flashback and they're timed perfectly. Because when you go back, it's like, it's like, again, they set up the main villain, they set up everything. And there's not a lot of action in this but the action you do get it's very satisfying this is remember this is the first issue is very dialogue heavy right you remember lone ranger green horror been around for a long time decades and decades so you have people who are in their 20s now granted not a lot of people are gonna be like me in their 20s and know who these characters are so you kind of have to reintroduce them a little bit to this and again the way that it ends is very like whoa like wow and, and it's just that Yes, and I like how they, the writer, you know, Michael Uslan, has pretty much put the whole Green Hornet thing on the fast track of, like, we're not going to do the whole, I am kind of lazy, I don't know what to do, this world is kind of taken over, or, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, positive news going on, you know, and stuff like that. They're not having this whole tr- trial process. It's kind of like, nope, this, is, this thing happens, and then he gets brought up, and he sees this happening, and he says, you know what, fuck it. You know, does this thing come in green? You know, and and then it's like, okay, cool. We're gonna get the Green Hornet in the next issue, uh, and it's not a spoiler because again, you know what's gonna happen. Like, you know it's in the title. It right. says Green Hornet right there. <laughs> right, and, and and the way that you know the characters are written is really really great. The art is phenomenal in this. Like, there is just there's there's a on page six, I'll say there's this, there's this this, this one giant panel, and it's kind of like these. When you bring in, not like it's kind of like a collage, but not really. It's more like a memorial kind of thing of just a Lone Ranger, and it's just beautiful. Like when you see this, it's gorgeous. Uh, the the art is just spot on, never loses a beat. It's very interesting. And also, if you read up some other dynamite stuff, like when it comes to like things in the in that era, like the Doc Savage and stuff like that, or or uh, the Avenger. It has kind of that same art style. That's why I say okay. I love about. Uh, that's why I love about Dynamite Comics, especially when it comes to things that are 
taking place in the 1930s and the 1950s is that the art stays the same. You get this great, great feeling of old times. For example, like a lot of the color that's used is more of a brown and kind of blackish. It's like reverse Batman where it's it's not dark all the time, but you see the light and it's more tan you know, and stuff like that. It kind of has an Old West feel, especially when you see the Lone Ranger who looks to be in the 70s, possibly early 80s. Uh, you know, it really, really meshes well. Dynamite knows how to do nostalgia. I mean, you oh, they go do. down the list of all the stuff that we've reviewed, and even stuff that we haven't reviewed on the show, and we've just read on our own. They just know how to do nostalgia, and they're very, very good at that. And I like that they respect the stuff that came before, but they also kind of they modernize it a little bit, even though it might be set in a in a in a time previous to modern times. They still find a way to make it interesting for the modern right. reader. So congratulations to them on that. So what's your rating on this? I think it's obvious, but let's let's. Oh, this is a definite. This is a definite pull for me. And again, what I love they do with Brit, who of course is the you know alter ego of the Green Hornet. But they do it with Brit. And his father paints this picture of Brit perfectly before you even see Brit in the comic at all. He's just kind of like, you know, there, there's this panel where they're walking in this building and pretty much the father says what's with kids today journeys of self-discovery thirsties thirsting for adventure life is the adventure and he's kind of like you know he talks about how again going back to my previous statement where he says you know we have all these news like hitler rising to power and all this you know horrendous stuff happening in the world how's the kid supposed to get inspiration and stuff like that and you see that, and it's just, it's beautiful, man. It's really, really beautiful. So, again, this is a poll for me. So, what would you do this week? So, I decided to go back to Valiant and check out what's going on with Bloodshot Reborn. So, it's issue number 14, but it is a new arc by Jeff Lemire. Artist is Mike Suyan, Colorist is David Barron. And then letters by Dave Lanfear, which is probably the first time I've ever gotten all the names right in a book. Go me. <laughs> um, now, this is called Bloodshot Island, so it should be no surprise, even if you haven't been reading Bloodshot, this is not a spoiler that it takes place on an island. So, oh, again, please. it's in the title. Oh, does, does he have a hat like the Skipper or Gilligan? No, he doesn't. As a matter of fact, he wakes up very confused as to where he is. Now, I will say this. If you've read any of my previous reviews of Bloodshot or if you've heard it on the show, I hate Blood Squirt. I hate him. He's annoying. He drives me nuts. So who do I see in the first page of this book? Bloodsquirt. And I'm like, if this is what this is going to be like, I'm just going to stop right now. Screw this comic. He's gone after the first page. So it's almost like, oh, you did that just to, okay, I see what you did there. But basically, he's lost. He's confused. If you did read the last arc, you know why he's there. I won't go into that because it does kind of tell you in the book why he's there or how he got there but not why he's there we do figure out what's going on on the island let's just say he finds out right away that he's not alone in a lot of ways he's not alone i'm just picturing bloodshot sitting at like a a, a, somewhere on the sand trying to make a radio out of coconuts there was no sitting (laughs) trust me you read this book especially the non-stop action that happens like right towards the middle of the book there's no sitting for a very good reason. Actually, he can't find Magic, who's his now, I guess, girlfriend slash wife. I mean, in some instances, it's his wife and some it's his girlfriend. So, I mean, where the timeline is here, I won't go into that. But he can't find her, so he's trying to find her. He comes up on somebody else. And then there's more. I can't go into too much because it's a whole just, whole book's one giant spoiler. Do you like how it's scripted? I do. I th- I was worried that it was going to start off slow because it's, for, it's the whole, okay, I'm on an island. What's the deal? But then... It, 
after a few pages, it just jumps right in. And then now you remember, um, a lot of stories were coming out about Valiant, about how are they going? They were going to introduce a a new villain, and it was going to be Deathmate. Right. So they teased that, teased that, teased that for a while. Well, I can tell you, maybe a little bit of a spoiler. We do get Deathmate in this issue, and we get to see what she can do, and we get to actually see where she came from. They don't go into it in great detail. I'm sure they will right. as the issues go on, but we get to see her in action. We get to see what she's doing, and we get to see a lot of Deathmate stuff. Her story, the way you're saying like, we get a lot of backstory on her and we see this kind of stuff, is it kind of like Grail, like what DC did with Grail back in, back in the day, like the, when, when the New 52 and the one-shots and stuff like that? They're not really giving a lot. In really? this issue, not a lot. I mean, we kind of see toward as we get towards the end, we see what could be the beginning of an origin story, maybe coming up in issue fifteen, where they're probably going to give us more of you know how did she come about, why is she here, who is she really, kind of thing. And even Bloodshot, when he sees her, says there's something familiar. So I think we're gonna get a little bit more on that as uh, issue 15 comes up. But I got to say, I do like what they did with this, and the ending definitely made you want to keep reading this book. I mean, there were times where you could have been in and out, but the action, is, as bloodshot books often do, the action keeps you interested throughout. Now, now, what about the art? Does the art keep you interested at all, or are there pages where you had to kind of skip? The art was a little different uh, than what I'm used to from bloodshot books. I, I will say that it's there are pages where it is very detailed and very good, and then there's other pages where I go, eh, you know what happened there. But again, it's it's kind of like we talked about this in the past, where the further away you get in the shot, the art kind of deteriorates right. a little bit. But the closer you get, the detail on the close-ups of the art, I will say, fantastic. I think you got to give a big holler and a shout-out to the colorist on this book, though, because... I mean, in a book called Bloodshot, where you're seeing a lot of whites and blacks and reds and stuff like that, David Barron gives you every little bit of other of the other colors in this book, especially with some other people that are in this book, which, again, I don't really want to get into because it's a nice big reveal in the middle of the book and I don't want to spoil it. But, I mean, it, it definitely kept me interested. The ending kind of brought this from a... I was going to say it was a pickup, but the ending brought it to a pull for me because now... That we're starting to get a little bit more on Deathmate, and we we find out what's really going on in this island because now we kind of know at the end what's going on on the island. This is a pull for me now. I'm interested to see where they're going to take this one. And see, that's the great thing about a book is that you know this can tell you how good a book in a series can be just by the ending. Like if you're saying like, well, I was thinking about giving this, but the ending just really like ramped it up. And that's the thing is, like I said, like even with Green Hornet with me, I was like, okay, we're not getting this, you know, Brit saying, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I should. It's like, nope, I'm the Green Hornet. I'm going to become the Green Hornet. With this, it's like what happens in the ending with this, it amps up. It gets you ready for issue two. So I think we got two new series that we just started reading, James, that uh, really we can't wait for issue two. Yeah, and the, and the thing is, is that lately I've been reading a lot of books where if I have that feeling kind of at the middle of the book, like, ah, maybe this is a pickup. Usually by the end, lately, mm-hmm. it's been going the opposite direction where I get to the end and I'm going, oh, really? Right. Really, that's what they're going to do? And then, I'm, and then I'm done. But in this case, I was pleasantly surprised that, yeah, I'm back on the bloodshot bandwagon. Let's do this. That's going to do it for this week and what we're reading. But come up next, you know, we're going to talk about Suicide Squad. We're going to talk about Ghostbusters. And we're going to talk about Star Trek Beyond, but not in the way you think we're going to talk about them. Find out how we're going to do that next. 
Hi, this is comic writer Mike W. Barr, co-creator of Katana, here with the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, when we talk about movies, we normally talk about the trailers, but this time we're going to be talking about the songs, because we're going to be talking about some of the new movie themes that have been coming out, so now, Nick, the only question is, we only need to find out if these are sick beats or beats that just completely make us sick. <laughs> right, we have three songs we're going to talk about, and the first one, of course, is Sucker for Pain from Suicide Squad, now, of course, that's done by Lil Wayne, Wiz Khalifa, Imagine Dragons, uh, Logic, and Ty Dolla Sign, also the X Ambassadors as well. And I mean, you want to talk about? Let's just talk about the video first for the actual song. You want to look at the video that just captures everything about the movie, the mm-hmm. feel that a dirty, grimy, these are scum of the earth people feel in terms of the characters in Suicide Squad. God damn, they did a really good job. They, they really did. A really good job with the sets. And and even the way that they and this is not easy to do either. The way they mixed in scenes from the movie with the video and just made it flow the way it was supposed right. to flow. And not only that, the song I think completely captures not just the video, but the song captures the the feel of the movie and pretty much every one of these characters. So I think they both do a really good job. Right. And again, it's kind of the, it's a little bit of like especially when Imagine Dragon starts singing in the beginning, it's like it has that creepy mm-hmm feel at that dark feel and then you know you see ty dolla sign and harley quinn cell as we saw in the trailer mm-hmm. you know and stuff like that and just i mean the effects and everything else it just it really meshed well together. i know you're not a big fan of rap i love you know old school hip-hop i love i love old rap school too. just not the new stuff right and, and, and i always want to say i think uh i mean magic dragon was great logic was great uh the ty dolla sign was great but, I mean, the one person I really want to talk about in this one is Lil Wayne because, uh, it, it, you know, in terms of music, I, I love, you know, when he came up with The Block Is Hot and he came out with, you know, the whole Carter stuff. My sister and I loved all his older stuff. But when I got to, like, Car- like after the Carter, like, around the Carter 4 and his mixtape stuff, I was kind of like, ah, lyrically it's not his best stuff. But this was, like, a return for him to come back and, and do and rap about the things that he did. And I felt that it was a really cool true to form Wayne coming back and, and rapping about what you know and, and having that kind of tone carrying himself in that way that made him great when he was coming up uh, through cash money and everything else and just as again this this theme with you have Imagine Dragons it's a nice blend and that's the thing with Imagine Dragons is if you remember there was an award show I can't remember which one it was I think it was the Grammys where they did a uh, they did a performance with Kendrick Lamar. I think it was the Grammys, yeah. Yeah, and it just there's something about their music and just their lyrics and just them as a whole mixes really well oh, with hip hop. I just love those guys, man, and they just—it's like they were put on this earth to kick ass. That's just exactly—that's <laughs> their theme of their right. band. That is just what they do from start to finish. They kick ass, and I mean, go back to Radioactive. I mean, yeah. you heard that, and you're like, these guys could be doing themes for movies what? easily. I'm trying to think of the trailer. I heard radioactive. Oh, I heard radioactive in. Um, it was. It wasn't divergent, but it was something. I can. I can remember the trailer. I just can't think of the name. But I know this was back back in 2011. It's when I first heard that trailer. Cause I was working at a movie theater at that time, and I was always. When I was a theater checker, I had to make sure, you know, the trailers ran and everything else like that. And uh, so that whenever that trailer was played, I always stick around just because of. of that song radioactive by Imagine Dragons. And it's just, again, <laughs> you know, I, I just, I love that song. It's literally a song that I put on my Spotify playlist for my workout. Cause it's like, I would put that on repeat, man. Yeah. I, Cause I you hear that it. song and you go, okay, here we go. 
Here we go. Now yeah. it's, it's about to happen. And that's just what they do with their music. So when I saw that they were going to be doing this song for Suicide Squad along with the other the other people that you mentioned, I'm like, this this is going to be good. I had high expectations right. for it, and it did not disappoint. Right, exactly. Our next song takes us to Star Trek, of course, we're talking about Rihanna's Sledgehammer, which was, of course, is going to be a part of Star Trek Beyond. And again, let's start off breaking down the music video before the song itself. When you look at the music video, okay, so this is a very space, very galactic. It felt very, not cyberpunk, but it felt very daft punk to me. Like if you've seen like Interstellar and stuff like that. Like it kind of had that feel to right. it. Right. No, know? I know exactly what you're saying. And and I, and what's weird is for some reason Rihanna just seems to fit. Oh yeah. In this world, I don't know why it is. And I've never been a huge fan of of a lot of Rihanna's music. I mean, I've liked some stuff and some stuff's just been terrible. Right. This like you were saying with Lil Wayne, this seems like a a pushback to, you know, good Rihanna and it's like, wow, you almost forget that Rihanna is that talented and she could actually put out a song like this. And I think what we don't know and I think we're kind of we saw a little bit more from the video is that this is going to be the theme of this movie. I mean, yeah. I know it seemed like early on, it's like, okay, we're going to have a lot of fun. This is going to be a fun Star Trek movie. I think that this is a reminder that Star Trek Beyond is also going to have a very deep and serious and dark side, especially when we're talking about Captain Kirk. Right, and then you see her like on that, what looks, you know, this desert area, which is supposed to be like a desert planet. And just the things that she's doing, the way that she looks and everything else, I'm not going to lie, like we just talked about Suicide Squad, I'm like, she kind of looks like Enchantress a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Actually, but, she does. But, uh, I mean, you know, it's really, really cool. And then, you know, diving into the song itself, you know, as you mentioned, this is going to be the theme of, of Star Trek, of the movie. And this is probably going to be what it's going to be like. You listen to the lyrics really closely. It's kind of like, you know, hitting walls and kind of breaking yep. through barriers. And, again, will this be Captain Kirk finally becoming full circle? Will this be the whole Enterprise crew coming full circle? And... You know, this is going to be what seems like to be their ultimate test and their most rigorous test that we've seen in this, I don't know if you want to call it the Abrams verse or whatever, but this current Star Trek universe. And so you see this song, and again, you want to talk about collaborations. You know, she collaborated this with Sia, and Sia, I believe, she did some of the ba- some background vocals. But yeah, I don't know she's if, got a vocal credit. Uh, I, don't know how I, much I believe, there, I believe Sia, like, I don't know if she wrote this song, or she co-wrote it with Rihanna, I'm not sure. Um, I do know she did have a hand in the writing either way. But, I mean, you hear this, and you hear the first beat of the song and the first measure, and you're like, okay, this is definitely like a Sia-inspired song. Yeah, but we're not swinging from chandeliers anymore. <laughs> this not, is some serious quite. stuff, man. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I just think that this is another way. I mean, the thing that movie st- theme songs are supposed to do is supposed to capture the right. theme and the essence of what the movie is going to be. And I think that for these first two songs, I think that they did that beautifully. And I think that, you know, like I said, we were expecting at first when we first saw Star Trek Beyond a fun you know, kind of... Well, Beastie Boys. Movie. Yeah, it was yeah. Beastie Boys. You know, and you're kind of like, well, I mean, we talked about this when we reviewed the trailer. We're like, really? You put Beastie Boys in this? Yeah, like, yeah, like exactly. really? You know, that yeah, was you not got, the best choice. You got, like, somebody riding a dirt bike, and you're like, oh, it's Star Trek Extreme! You know? It's yeah, like, and, and now you've got the Enterprise crashing and Captain Kirk with his hand on his forehead and all this other stuff, and it's like, whoa, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe it's not going to be as fun as we thought. 
Right. And, and so, I mean, those are the, the two, first two songs. But the third song, <sighs> it, yeah, and just by James' side, you can tell this is the Ghostbusters uh, remake of the theme song, the Ghostbusters theme for, of course, the Ghostbusters. I'm calling it a reboot. It's not because that's what it is. And listen, we, we've talked about the trailer. I, remember we, I know when we talked about the trailer, we said, hey, give this movie a chance and we'll you know, see how it goes. But there were things about it that did bother us. Um, but now, with everything that's happened and how uh, Paul Fagg is coming out and lashed out towards people, how the actors themselves have kind of like stuck their noses in the air and been really like, oh, we're just going to, you know, people say, like, oh, they're combating the trolls. Like, no, they're they're being dicks is what they're being. Like, Yeah, at this point you are. I mean, you say something being once. Smug. Yeah, you say something once or or you take the high road, you know. I mean, look at look at Ben Affleck, for example. How many people bash the hell? Out of Batman versus Superman before it came out and after it came out. Right. Now, whether it was justified or not is a, a conversation we won't get into again. But Ben Affleck took the high road. Henry Cavill took the high, high road. road. Everybody took the high road. Like, you know what? People are going to have their opinions. We respect them, blah, blah, blah. That's not happening here. And I know that we're talking about comedians and maybe they think, you know, that, that wisecracking and doing stuff like, stuff like this is part of their shtick. But it, it's gone over the line now. Yeah, it's gotten to the point where you're kind of like just poking at this point. And going into this music video, I was like, okay, it's Fall Out Boy and it's featuring Missy Elliott. When you when I first hit play, I couldn't get through probably the first ten seconds, and then with every fiber in my being, hit play again and listen to the entire song. What's funny is is huh. that the first ten seconds that's basically it. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. Right, that I that's what to, I was trying to tell you well, beforehand. The, yeah, that's the thing. I listen to the song and I'm like, this is just a shitty Fall Out Boy song. Like the 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 way that. The way that it sounds, the pacing, I'm like, this is just, if you took a Fall Out Boy song, I like Fall Out Boy because I like some of their older stuff. So do I. Like yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, this is just really sped up, shitty Fall Out Boy. And I, listen, I understand people say, well, the original Ghostbusters theme wasn't the best. And I will agree with that. However, it did. what did it do? It properly captured the movie. Yeah, it, it properly fit. captured the theme. The movie in and of itself is a... And this is why, I, why, why I'm defending the, the original song. The movie in and of itself, the original Ghostbusters, was a silly, fun, dumb, in a sense, out-of-this-world movie. And it was so, supposed to be. Yeah, that it was, was supposed to point. be goofy. Yeah. It was supposed to be a goofy thing. This is like when you you know it's, you know what this is it's kind of like when you're in high school and you think you're bigger than you really are so you go and pick on like the big offensive lineman at school and you're like I am this buff thing and you try to take yourself so seriously and then the big offensive lineman which is like the people they look at you like the people who listen to this or look at you and you're like the fuck out of here not only that i would sprinkle some of this in too you know the person everybody's got one person in their life yeah who thinks that they are hip and with it on everything yeah. and they talk out their ass and then the more and more they talk you realize this person has no idea what they're talking about right so i would mix those two things together and i think that's what you've got and, and that's the thing is i talked to and i've talked to a lot of friends and people who 
you know, around my age, grew up or grew up at Ghostbusters. Even some people were a little bit younger than I am. And they were just like, yeah, I got through this, again, the same amount, like 10 seconds, six seconds. And I'm like, and they're like, and I had to turn it off. It was just fucking terrible. Missy Elliott didn't need to be there at all. No. <laughs> I mean, not at all. That, that just didn't fit. And again, this is the exact opposite of what I was saying earlier. This movie, I mean, this song doesn't fit the movie at all. There's nothing creepy about it. There's nothing ghostly about it or extraterrestrial about it. And you know what I mean musically when I say that. There was That wasn't there. Yeah, it just it, wasn't present at all. No, it's just, again... And, and my thing was, people probably say, well, what would you have done to this song to maybe make it better or whatever? I'm like, I wouldn't have made a new song. I would just use the old one. Because the old one's just, you know what I'm saying? like, Or just use the old one and have somebody current sing it. Right. They've done that before. But, not, I mean, but like, actually have somebody who can actually sing. Like, don't have, like, a band do it or anything like right. that. Like, actually have, like... Right. It, it, but again, it's kind of like... Listen, I understand that, that they're... Technically, the re—I mean, it's what it is—the rebooting is because they're pretty much saying that the past didn't exist and everything else. Even though uh, some of the older cast members are making uh, brief appearances and stuff yeah. like that in the movie, it's just one of those things where it's kind of like, okay, I understand that, but at the same sense, as you want to kind of capture that nostalgia, and I understand it would if even if they did use it, people would still say, "How dare you use this for?" You know, in a shitty movie, but in the end, I would still be able to defend that and say, "Well, right. it's Ghostbusters. What else can you?" Right, you know, what exactly. saying, and "I'd rather them use that. I'd rather the movie be bad, but them use, you know, say, you know what? We'll still do this for a little bit of fan service uh, and to get some good graces in an attempt than to to do what they did here and just pretty much bastardize the the, the fucking song." You Vanilla know? Ice's "Go Ninja Go" song oh, from Teenage Mutant yeah. Ninja Turtles two captured. <laughs> The movie better than this movie than the song. I, think that, that I, I don't think there was a better song that captured the '90s than "Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just I mean, I like, wore that cassette tape out, man. I'm well, not I mean, gonna lie. you know, you're going through the store and you see a macaroni and cheese that's TMNT shaped, and you're just saying to yourself, "Go Ninja, yep. Go Ninja, Go, Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go," and then you nunchuck the lady next to you, and you're like, "Oh, I'm sorry." You embrace the past. Yeah, you, you get too into it. <laughs> and, and I think that that's part of the problem, too. I think from the beginning, nobody involved in this movie really embraced the past. They they were so hell-bent on doing their own thing, that and, and now they're pushing everybody away. And I'm not saying you can't do your own thing, but don't pretend like you are and then not. Right. You know? Right, exactly, exactly, man. <laughs> but come next, Marvel and Fox, well, they might be crossing paths sooner than we expected. We'll talk more about that and Tetris and then a couple other things in nerd news coming your way next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Anna Mir and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, folks, it's time we sit around the conference table with some fellow mutants and we decide what's going to happen in the future and what's going to happen to the brand itself. Because it's time for what, James? Nerd, nerd news! Our first story deals with Marvel and Fox. And for a while we've said, and kind of speculated, hey, there's going to come a point where these two studios are going to come together just like Marvel and Sony did with Spider-Man. I think they're going to do the same thing with Fox and X-Men. And, of course, according to Matt Key, who, of course, is a uh, producer on Fat Man and Batman, he told Collider that he's heard from a few of his sources in his little birds that Fox and Marvel have kind of talked about having a sort of shared universe, but there is interest from Fox, and, I mean, what do you make of this, man? 
Uh, I mean, it's hard to say. I think that, first of all, right off the bat, I think we're years and years from this happening. Right. So I think we'll get that out of the way right now. I think. I mean, I mean, I think we are literally after Infinity Wars. This yeah, I, I think that's the only way that they can really do it. And and plus, I think they need to distance themselves from Civil War because let's say they decided to do a Avengers versus X Men movie, yeah. you would need to have quite a bit of distance from Civil War because you wouldn't want to do something so similar that close together. But I mean, I'm not. On the surface, everybody thinks X-Men, and I totally understand that, and I, I, I see where you go with that, or just maybe just Wolverine or something like that. Right. I'm not so sure that we're not looking at somebody like Doctor Doom. Yeah, yeah. Like a borrowing type of thing, just like how kind of they're borrowing Spider-Man from Sony, even though Sony's retaining the rights, but Marvel has creative control type thing, because I think that... Not having Doctor Doom in the in the MCU is gonna hurt Marvel eventually. Yeah, I think so too. And again, people say, well, "What about the Fantastic Four? And again, we've said this many times: the Fantastic Four don't really work in movies. They're more of a TV kind of a product. Yeah, I would say they're more of a TV product. Yeah, really, screw them. I, I agree. And quite uh, frankly, I, I do not want even the Marvel MCU to get their hands on Deadpool at all. Right. And, he, and here's the thing: is uh, yeah, you know, I believe it was, it was our buddy Matt Slay. We're talking. I was talking to about this at lunch. This is back in May. We're talking about kind of like if they were to bring the X Men into this universe, and he brought up a point of like, well, what if you have like this re- the Reality Stone or whatever, and then you see like somebody, you know, Thanos rips open the re- you know, Reality or whatever, and there, then you see like Wolverine, or you see Cyclops or somebody. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Like, yeah, and you could absolutely do that. And then that's how you bring the X Men in through that reality. That actually makes a lot of sense, and. You know, it's, I mean, you look at that, and it's like, well, what if Thanos rips open reality? Also, you see Doctor Doom. It could be one of those things. Because again, to not see Doctor Doom be part of any cinematic universe, really, like, I mean, and when I say that, I mean a good Doctor yeah, Doom. Yeah, let's not even go there, people. Yeah, I'm not talking Don't about. Don't even go there. I'm not talking about crash test, glowing crash test dummy Doctor Doom. I'm talking about yeah. you know Victor Von Doom, who's a ruler and like the Victor Von. Doom. You know, Son of like scientists and, and gypsies right. and, and and shit like that, you know. Like I want that, and it'd be really really cool to see that, and it'd be really really cool to do that. And I think again, ending with Infinity Wars, that'd be the best way to bring in those yeah, characters. But here's the fly in the ointment of this entire operation. Yeah. What does Fox get out of this? Money. <laughs> they get shit tons of money. But how much money? A lot of money. Because think about it with Sony. They're still holding on to the Spider-Man movies. Right, but still, again, but here's the thing, though. Sony's still holding on to Spider-Man movies, but Sony also still owns Spider-Man. Right. Fox, even, to way I, the way I see this is, Marvel would be in charge of making the movies, but Fox, I think, would be in charge of other stuff, like, I think, maybe possibly budgeting or whatever. But it's one of those things where it's kind of like, Picture a sports team, right? You have your owner, you have your president of basketball operations. Marvel would be the president of basketball operations, the general manager making all the moves. The owner would be the one signing the checks. True, but that that is the case. But then now you're it's a little different story because now you're talking about revenue sharing. And right. It's not just the movie. Well, I, well, I would think it's Fox, a lot I know, of other stuff. No, it's it's merchandise and toys and everything else. But I still, again, because Fox owns the rights to you know Doctor Doom and the only rights to X Men and stuff like that. 
they will get the most cut of the share. And it's not like Disney and Marvel are hurting for money right no, now. No, of course not. They just want to get. They just want to use who they. They just want a good use. product. They just yeah. want. They just want like honestly, honestly, they are literally <laughs> the way. The way that Marvel has been like like with Spider Man and possibly with X Men or and Doctor Doom in this case. They're like Tonto when they find a Lone Ranger dead and they resur- and he resurrects them. Like that's what Marvel's Marvel's playing the resur- the person who right. resurrects and, things. And, and there's no altruism here. Everybody wants to make money. Right. You know, it's not just for the I mean, it's for the fans, but at the same time, everybody wants to make money. So I think if you can give Fox if you can make Fox think that they won the deal, they'll do it. But if right. you can't make Fox think that they can puff their chest out and be like, we beat Marvel Studios, they'll never do it. Right. Well, speaking of beating things, James, one movie that we talked about actually in Geektainment that's been beating a lot of other movies, including Disney properties, on social media has been Suicide Squad. I got to be honest, man. This kind of reminds me, and I'm not just saying this because people are comparing the two movies, which I don't think they should do. It reminds me of the campaign that they put out for Guardians of the Galaxy when Guardians of the Galaxy was still new. Except that was more of a straight-up marketing. We're going to throw the trailers and the commercials and everything in your face at every possible turn. Instead, what Suicide Squad's doing is a little bit at a time. They're, right. releasing, they're releasing juicy little nuggets all over social but media. But here's the thing. Is that I'm, you know, reading the article right now, and what's, and you look at it, and what's really interesting is the fact that Suicide Squad, it's not the fact that they're, you know, getting, I mean, of course, they're releasing character posters and they're releasing, you know, music videos and stuff like that. So it's easy for them to, to rule social media. And yeah, it's, they're doing it against Rogue One, which doesn't open until like the fall. But the fact of the matter is, what's more interesting is, they're beating out movies that are coming out in the next few weeks, like yeah. Star Trek Beyond and Ghostbusters. And it beat the pants off of Independence Day as well. Yeah. So, I mean, even though I, I, what I was saying was, yeah, they're releasing short these little pieces bit by bit to always keep themselves relevant. But the thing is, is that they're not just relevant. They're, you know, top trending every time they do something. Yeah, man. So that should tell you how excited people are for this movie. And I think that every little thing you've seen, even if you were on the fence about something, the more you see, the more you're going, huh, this looks a lot better than I expected. And I, I was super excited the first time I saw the first trailer. Right. So every little bit I see now is getting me that much more excited. And once you build that excitement, people want to know more. They have to know more. So that's how it's happening. And to, to play devil's advocate, this can also come to a major downfall in terms of Suicide Squad because people are like, because what do they get? What's happening? People are hyping up the movie. Oh, sure. We're constantly getting photos released. And, you know, the whole, remember that the uncut Batman or Superman Dawn Justice DVD came out and they're like, oh, we got these new photos of Joker. They're in this yep. DVD collection and everything else like that. And it's like amping up even more. So you go see the movie and it doesn't live up to your expectations or it's a really good movie, but because it's so hyped, it just, we just have unrealistic expectations, and it can also hurt it in that way. Well, like, like if one thing happens, like if Leto sucks, it's gonna, it, people are gonna come down on it even harder because of of the hype. You're absolutely right. Or if, if Margot Robbie isn't quite as good as people want her to be as Harley, if one little thing is out of place, sure, you're absolutely right. It could come crashing down all over their faces. Oh, right, man. Speaking of things that are crashing down, when you play Tetris, blocks come crashing down, and of course, and you got to connect the pieces and make things fit. Well, 
How did you feel knowing that Tetris is going to be a sci-fi trilogy? Of course, this is according to Larry Kazanoff, who, of course, is banking on this whole video game franchise because he is actually the producer for it. And he actually told Empire that it's going to be this this trilogy. So how do you feel about this, man? First of all, I, I knew that this movie was never going to be. They made reference to this in the, in the, in the interview saying uh, little blocks with feet running right. around. I think we all knew that that is not what this movie was going to be. Here's my thing, man. It, now that I've seen this, first of all, I don't, I don't see how they're going to do it. I mean, I know this have got, they've got a big story. I don't see it. This is going to have nothing to do with Tetris whatsoever. Oh, no, it's not. There, it's, it's just it's just not even – it's going to be the name. That's it. it it's gonna, or, wait, or what's going to happen is – and this is exactly what I think it's going to be. There's going to be a threat to Earth or some sort of planet, right? The only way to defeat it is at the end they're probably going to have to – put these pieces together and configure them in a game of Tetris. And that's all it's going to be. And then they do it and it saves the day. One thing that stuck out to me that they said, and I'm paraphrasing is chaos of society. Right. This is going to be a read between the lines, you know, find just the right blocks to put in the right places, but in the blocks, meaning people or situations or something like that. They are going to do this so metaphorical. Oh, yeah. That it is going to have absolutely nothing to do with <laughs> Tetris at all, which is actually fine because when we first heard about this, I'm going, get out of here. By the way, here's here. Okay. Of all, let's, let's do some of this. Let's do something that has to actually do with Tetris in terms of the game itself. We talked about theme songs and geek tainment. Where would you rank Tetris's theme? Oh, man. Like, to me, it's, I think, because the fact that it's, like, I think still the number one selling game of all time, like, I think I think, I think of all time, I'm not sure if it's for handheld or for both, but the fact that it's still, like, selling and it's still a thing, I think it's number one, man. I know people say, you know, I know people say the whole Super Mario thing, that I think that's number two. I think Super Mario is two, and third... God, uh, Zelda? Probably, probably Zelda, maybe. I would flip. I would have to flip flop Mario and Tetris. I, I get why you say that. I don't think it's a landslide by any means. Right. I just think if you play the two theme songs, if you walked up to a hundred people on the street and played the theme songs to the two to the two games, Mario's going to get recognized more. Well, of course, but I, I just think that, and just I just think that. In terms Again. of pure sales? Well, in terms of pure sales... Your I, argument is valid. In terms of pure sales, I think it's also it's one of those things where, like, whenever I watch... You know, I watch a lot of movies... Uh, not movies, but I watch a lot of videos on YouTube. They kind of, like, you know, top ten games or so on things. And whenever Tetris is mentioned, the screen always goes black, and the first thing you hear is... Dun, 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 yep. dun, 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 And then it's like, okay, it's such a, a, a well-known theme. Uh, again, I, I think... I would say Tetris one, uh, especially for people who are like our age, especially people working in their forties and stuff like that too. Well, I was a PC gamer, so right, right. And, and uh, again, Zelda, I, was, I, I even Mario and Zelda, I probably still maybe flip flop, or I think Mario be two and Zelda be three. Those yeah, are very Zelda's interchangeable. Yeah. Either way, I think those three, no matter which way you put them, they're very interchangeable. I agree. I agree. Uh, well, speaking of things that are not really interchangeable, but they're more kind of going back into space and science fiction, 
Lost in Space. Okay, did you ever watch the old TV show, or have I you seen? Okay, did. did you see the movie that they did, like in the nineties? I, I think did it was? not see the movie. See, I did. That was my first. That was my first actual introduction to Lost in Space. And the reason why we're talking about Lost in Space is that, well, Netflix is saying we're doing a Lost in Space, uh, you know, reboot. And that's fine. I, I don't see any problem with this. I mean, I know that reboots are the big thing in Hollywood, and they're going to give it a 10-episode straight series order from... It's actually going to be part of uh, from Legendary TV, which I think that's probably a good fit for them. Right. We're looking at starting in November, according to the story from Deadline and Eyed for a 2018 premiere. Here's the thing. I know that the guys that are doing this, and there's like 60 of them on this list. Right. I know that this is a passion project for a couple of these guys. It doesn't matter how much you love this. If you cast it wrong, right, you're dead. Oh yeah, but here's the thing though: is also is are people clamoring for a Lost in Space? See, that's the reboot? thing too. I don't think they are. People from people that are older than me. I'm 37 years old. I mean, okay. People that are a little bit older than me would probably see this and go, "Oh, that looks interesting." <laughs> but how many of those people are in Netflix's key demographic? <laughs> but here's the thing though: too is in, in I mean, this isn't going to sound like an insult because it pretty much kind of is. When you think of Star Wars, Star Trek, and Lost in Space, Lost in Space is like the GoBots of the Transformers. You know what I'm saying? Well, <laughs> Lost in Space, Lost in, pa- in Space is is a pushdown sci-fi series for sure. Right? It's not even the best sci-fi series ever. No. And I won't get into that argument with sci-fi fans, because there's plenty that you could choose from. I mean, but... I mean, I mean, even if you throw in Battlestar Galactica, it's like Lost of Space, I think, yeah, even goes down more. Yeah, I don't think you could put Lost of Space over Battlestar. But here's the thing with Lost in Space that could make it successful. All right. It's that blend of comedy and drama. That is right. one thing that Lost in Space, the original series, did so well. They knew when to bring, to put the comedy in, and they knew when it had to get dramatic and even bring in the action as well. If they can capture that somehow in a modern technology-type scenario, you could have something here. Plus, I'm not going to lie. Like I said, when I grew you know, when I was a kid, this is when the, the actual movie came out because there were shirts and merchandise and stuff like that. Uh, I can't think of the robot's name, but I had a T-shirt of the robot who was a, who I wish I still fucking had by probably Danger Will Robinson. Yeah, yeah, it was the robot, and it said Danger Will Robinson above it, and it was like this really cool shirt. And I know I said I wish I still had, but it's probably like look at me now, like I weigh like you know one eighty, so I'm probably like you know back then I was like one twenty. I don't think it would pounds. fit, man. <laughs> I think I'd be hulking out of that, you know. <laughs> It, it, it probably looked like a mankini on me at this By point. By the way, the, the robot was just called Robot, so you're good. Oh, it was just Robot? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that's, that's I mean, that's I mean, good. You're, you're good there. I didn't want to... Well, because you know how sci-fi likes to get fancy with their robot names? Like, Not Johnny, this one. <laughs> like, you, know, you got Johnny 5, C-3PO, you know, R2-D2. Next thing you know, you're going to be like T1-8000-7RB3, you know, huh. whatever. You know, hey, it's, Robot, come here. <laughs> hey, Robot. <laughs> not exactly bumping our heads on the creative ceiling. Now. When you seriously go, hey robot, is it kind of like I think that's kind of like an insult? Like, hey, dick face. <laughs> Actually, I think it's a little bit uh, mechanist. 
I mean, I mean, robots, robots need to be accepted more into society, I think. And no, they don't, because then Skynet fucking happens and we yeah, die. That's, that's true. <laughs> Not all robots are Skynet, you mechanics. Uh, we're going to build a wall around the robots. Now fly over the wall. <laughs> it's a robot. We'll put a net over the wall so they can't climb over the net. It'll be great. And we'll make Skynet pay for it. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this really, this really took a <laughs> This really just went off the rails. So in, Net- in 2018, <laughs> Netflix will probably have less in space. Oh. Uh, but I mean, think about it, though. Let's get getting back to it for a second. The fact that I watched the original series yeah. and never saw the movie should tell you all you need to know about Lost in Space fandom, quite frankly. I know that there are some people that they yeah. love Lost in Space and they loved it but again, even in reruns. But, get, you know, but again, since the movie, there really hasn't been any Lost in Space. You know all. what I'm saying? Yeah. But uh, that's going to do it's it for not a spinoff. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> that's going to do it for nerd news. But come next. We're going to be diving into the pages of Green Arrow with Green Arrow's writer, Benjamin Percy. Stay tuned. It's coming next right here on the Down Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Katrina Law from Arrow, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast with James Witham and Nick Battaglia. Well, you know, Nick and I were excited for DC Rebirth when it started. One book that kind of caught our eye we were really hoping was going to be great was Green Era Rebirth, and boy, was it ever. So we're really excited to talk to writer Benjamin Percy about that new series. Benjamin, how you doing, man? Pretty good. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, no problems. Matter of fact, before we dive into the book itself, I want to talk about the fan reaction really quick. I'm sure you felt that the story would be successful, but how did you feel when you found out it had sold over 90,000 copies, gone to a second printing, and received such critical acclaim? No one's more surprised than me. I'm thrilled, gratified. You know, we put, as a team, so much effort into this, so much love into this. And, you know, to have the, the readership suddenly for Green Arrow, you know, to have the series elevated by this rebirth platform. We're all grinning like a bunch of idiots because of it. And, you know, who you know, who can point to the one reason this is working? I mean, I would say, look at the look at the artists we've got working on this right now. I mean, Otto Schmidt and Juan Ferreira are, you know, extraordinary talents. So it's that. I mean, it's it's the fact that it's a number one issue. It's and that there's this rebirth momentum going on. It's the goatee. It's Black Canary. I mean, Black Canary is uh, an essential part of the Green Arrow mythology, and uh, you know, it's it's as I said before, hard for me to even imagine writing Green Arrow without her. So it's, it's that. It's it's the editorial team. Uh, working with Andy Coury, I gotta say that like that guy is a boy genius. He's a fantastic editor, and we've achieved this kind of mind meld whereby you know I can throw out ideas, we'll ping pong back and forth. He'll you know work with me on refining scripts and refining story arcs. So, anyways, what I'm saying is like this isn't this isn't my victory. This is the team's victory, and damn, it's great. It's great to be talking to you right now, it's great to be uh, hearing about 
the second printing, and we'll see. Maybe beyond that. I don't know what the final numbers are going to be for June, but they're big. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great time to be working for DC Comics. Oh, definitely, especially during, the as you mentioned, this whole Rebirth initiative, and it's just been a spectacular thing DC's been able to do at Rebirth. And the main ideology and strength behind Rebirth is that every character is going back to their roots. They're going back to what made them so iconic and great. And as a writer and a fan of comics yourself, what was your mindset going into the series, and what are some things you want fans of Green Arrow, both new and old, to get out of your story? When I took over issue 41, I treated it as though it was a number one issue. Right. Uh, I, and in doing so, I <clears throat> approached Green Arrow novelistically, since I'm a novelist. And, you know, it's a somewhat suicidal approach, but that's just how I roll, because I saw it as important to, you know, lay emotional ground groundwork, that to really understand Oliver Queen, because I felt like, I didn't feel like I had a good sense of the character from what had been written in the New 52 so far, as much as I admired, you know, especially the Jeff Lemire run. I felt like I really needed to get in and examine the character. So I kept him as far away from a bow and arrow and costume as I could to begin with. And again, this is, you know, this is craziness to do something like this, but, you know, I think it paid off that I, I wanted to reach a tipping point where Green Arrow took over all of her claim. And, you know, I, I also wanted to do a number of things that this rebirth, you know, this rebirth became a gateway for. You know, I wanted from the very beginning to have Black Canary in there, and I was forbidden. But you know, look back and you'll see all these seeds that I just know they're gonna, they were going to give me Black Canary eventually, but they couldn't keep her, keep her away. You know, uh, you know, they told me no goatee, but then you see that over the course of you know, the New 52, my run of New 52, that, you know, he gets a lot more follicles on his face as we move forward. And now, you know, we've got the gateway to that, with rebirth, and, and so on. Like, and, and I've always loved Mike Grell's run on Green Arrow uh, the most. And, you know, channeling some of what he was doing with street-level justice, channeling a lot of what Danny O'Neill and Joe Adams were doing with their run, with the social injustice you know, informing Green Arrow's character, like all of these things. Like, I feel like I'm with Reapers. I'm, I'm, I'm tipping my cap to history and also moving forward and just, you know, creating a, a new generation of readers, moving into an exciting future. So this, this opening arc, you know, it, it, it antidotes another thing that I felt like was a few other things that I felt like were, were missing from Green Arrow. Uh, one is, you know, is Robin Hood mythology. Mm-hmm. You know, the billionaire status bothers me. It makes him feel more like a rip-off Batman. And, and two, you know, it goes against, this is the poll quote from the first arc, Black Canary says, you know, how can you fight the man if you, if you are the man? So, you know, I'm right. casting him out of his ivory tower, and I've got a situation that, you know, sort of a canonical equivalent to the Daredevil born-again storyline. And, you know, the rogues gallery for Green Arrow has been somewhat lacking uh, in the past, and I really want to create some pronounced villains, uh, some unforgettable rogues. And, you know, we've got a crazy lineup on the horizon. But to start off, you know, the ninth circle, uh, this hellish cabal drawn from Dante's in 
a kind of equivalent to the Court of Owls, and that it's a secret society that has pretty profound influence over the whole DCU. So I'm super excited to be unveiling that and hopefully creating, you know, some enemies that will even transcend Green Arrow. Absolutely. I'm actually glad that you're, that you're doing that in this run. And I actually think that you mentioned the Jeff Lemire run. One of the characters that I always thought was kind of intriguing was one that he co-created during his run, and that was Emiko Queen. Now, at the end of issue one, we kind of see quite a bombshell for anybody who didn't read it. And you see just how important she's going to be in the story going forward. So how quickly will her, will her motives kind of be revealed? There are so many twists coming that you're... The head will likely unscrew from your shoulders by the completion of this arc. So <laughs> that's kind of what I was are, looking for. <laughs> there, there are a lot of uh, hidden motivations. Uh, there are a lot of secrets that will be slowly unpacked. I mean, the whole the, the most exciting moment in any in any story, Stephen King says, is when a character hears the noise behind him attic door or a cellar door and approaches it with their hand outstretched and and that's kind of what I'm doing to you right now is like I'm I'm holding things tantalizingly out of reach. Well <laughs> 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 like if, if you know you ask me these spoiler questions and I open the door and it's always like you're in the horror movie people scream but then the scream is followed by laughter because they're you know it's not as bad as they imagined or they're relieved because finally Finally, we, we know what's waiting there. And I know I want you to wait as long as possible. Oh, we live we lived to tease our, our listeners, Benjamin. There's no question about that. Yeah. Benjamin, one, you, know, you mentioned was the whole thing with Black Canary and how she said, you know, to Oliver, how can you, you know, beat the man if you are the man? And, you know, the last issue did talk about how his partnerships and his relationships were built on his fortune and his money and not really on any other substance. So... Uh, how important is that just to, to think that as Oliver Queen, just to realizing that, you know, in the series that he has no real relationships in his life. They're just, you know, it's, it's money rules everything in his life. It's essential. I mean, transitioning into the character as a kind of Robin Hood, right. Uh, and just, uh, you know, a larger note about black canary and, you know, the relationship between them is so compelling. It's, you know, one of the most storied romances and, kind of book history and they work together so well because they're an odd couple you know they are Abbott and Costello Sonny and Cher Kirk and Spock you can't imagine a Star Trek story without Spock you know adventuring alongside Kirk and in the same way it's hard to imagine Green Arrow without Black Canary by his side they, they complete each other you know they're you know, he is so impassioned. He wears his heart on his sleeve. And sometimes that makes him, you know, a bit of a moron, too, because he isn't thinking things through. Or she is much more guarded and defensive. Uh, you know, he grew up in this privileged way. She grew up on the streets and in foster care. And, and one of the things she's doing, as you note, is challenging him, like calling him out on his bullshit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because of that, he's able to become a better man, a better hero. Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I want to touch on something you mentioned earlier when you first started on on Green Arrow, how you kind of took it back to issue one and keeping him out of that costume as much as possible. And I think that it's hard to, it's easy to get lost and, you know, with all the arrows and the stuff that's going on, get lost in this Oliver Queen story that a lot of people don't focus on. So 
I think what you really did early on was kind of focus on his seemingly never-ending quest for that real family dynamic. So how much of a factor, if at all, is that going to be playing in future issues? And what do you feel like is the most meaningful relationship in Oliver's life? Robin Hood meets his merry men, right? And he doesn't have family, with the exception of Amiko, his half-sister. So he's forging his own. You know, he's he's building his own quitter. Uh, And, you know, I'm not just talking about a team that will fight alongside him. I'm talking about uh, those he's opening his heart to. And I would say that Black Canary and Amico are essential to him for very different reasons. And that's going to be explored in this first arc. And there's also, I suppose I can probably say this since the solicits are coming down the pipeline, but, you know, Robin Hood needs Little John, and Diggle's coming. Nice. Oh, there it is. Nice. Very, very nice. And, and of course, people were talking with Benjamin Percy, of course, is the writer for Green Arrow. Issue number two is going to be available July 6th at your local shops and digital retailers. Okay, so Benjamin, I have a scenario I want to give you. You're stranded okay. on a deserted island like Oliver Queen, and you have one makeshift arrow left in your quiver. Do you use it to hunt for food for the evening or hold on to it for protection? <laughs> uh, well, I would tie a line to it uh, and use it for fishing so that it could be retrieved. There you go. Ah, nice. See, that's so it a... could also a defense. See, and that's why he'd survive. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Benjamin, we're not going to get any spo- into any spoilers here, but I couldn't let you go without talking about your other rebirth title that you're going to be working on in September, and that's Teen Titans. Now, I know oh, you can't. Yeah. I know you can't talk much about it, but. How great is it going to be working with Damian Wayne now leading the team? And how much of a game changer is this new dynamic going to be for that series? Oh, man, it's so exciting. The, I mean, the, the massive personality of Damian is you know, incredibly fun to write as he's challenged by you know Beast Boy and Raven and Starfire. He's maturing, right? He's turn 13, as we've learned from the DC Universe Rebirth issue. And what you're going to see is this tyrannical, Napoleonic character forced into situations where he's going to become, I mean, he's still going to be Damien, but become more of a team player as he tips towards adulthood, right? This is a transitionary time in his life. He's, you know, he's no longer a kid. He's in that gray zone between kiddom and adulthood. Uh, so anyways, these characters are so much fun to play with. And the series is so much fun to play with too, because there's such diversity in storytelling. The way that, you know, we've got these detective stories available through Damien, and then we've got sci-fi through Starfire and horror through Raven and comedy through Beast Boy. Uh, and I, you know, there's a secret character, that I haven't revealed yet, we haven't revealed yet coming. That'll be the gateway to a whole other universe of storytelling as well. And anyways, I'm just having so much fun working with the editorial team and with John Boy Myers, the artist, who is bringing his A game. People are going to, I think people are really going to rally behind this. 
Oh yeah, we can't wait to read it because you know, again, your work on Green Arrow has been amazing, and we just we're so excited for Teen Titans as well. And Benjamin, before we let you go, man, where can people find you on social media? Just type for my name, Benjamin Percy, and you'll find me on Twitter and uh, and Facebook. Uh, you know, throwing out pithy comments here and there, and uh, <laughs> talk, talking about comics and novels and movies. So I hope to see you online. Absolutely, and we can't wait to see more from Benjamin Percy, who's going to have Green Arrow number two, which will be available July the 6th at local shops and digital retailers. And, of course, look for Teen Titans Rebirth in September. It's writer extraordinaire and future Clancy Brown voice impersonation winner. It's Benjamin Percy. Benjamin, thanks for talking to us this week. Hey, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks. You know, dude, it's it's awesome when we have somebody on here, especially from DC Comics, to talk about this whole rebirth initiative. Because as we said last week, man, it's just been kicking all sorts of ass and has been kicking on all cylinders. I'm going to tell you right now. When I saw who was going to be in the lineup for Rebirth, and we kind of went over it on the show, I looked at Green Arrow. And the first thing I thought, and that was the one that stood out to me, because the first thing I thought is, dear God. God, I hope this is good. I want this to be good so bad I can feel it in my bones. And then when I read that Rebirth issue, I, it was almost like tears were yeah. welling up in my eyes because I'm like, oh, we have it. We finally have it again. And I was just so excited to see what Benjamin is doing with not just, I was as I was saying, the Green Arrow side, but the Oliver Queen side is just incredible. And I can understand why 90,000 copies flew off the shelves. Well, and again, it's this whole evolution. Because remember he said that when he took over issue 41 during the whole, you know, back in the New 52 era and stuff like that. It was just one of those things where it was like, I wanted to get him away from the costume. I wanted to, mm-hmm. you know, rebuild him and take it as a number one. And then, you know, they said no goatee. Well, now you can see he has the goatee. So it's kind of like a rebranding and, and you know, again, a rebirth of Oliver Queen. And to, for him to say, you know what? I wrote this from a novel standpoint. I wanted to take him back as to his, like, Robin Hood-esque roots, you know? And, and that's what made, made Green Arrow such a great character for all those years, you know? Oh, absolutely. And just the the approach that he's taking, the characters that he's using, the, the comparison that he made to Batman, which I think that yeah. a lot of people have done uh, when talking about Arrow, and that's and how he kind of wanted to get away from that. I'm, I'm really glad that he's taking the approach he's taking. I mean, speaking of novelists, you want to find out more about his novels, just go to BenjaminPercy.com. He's got a ton of them, and obviously he knows what he's doing. He's a very good writer. Oh, exactly. And just one, one last thing was... I love that he he spent time talking about how Black Canary is that person in in the story in the series who calls Oliver out on his bullshit yep. and is like you know you say you are you know it's it's in the comics she's like how can you you know beat the man if you are the man and it's kind of like and, it, and there's and it's great because as she's telling him as he's driving through like you know I did this you know I was able to build this you know home for you know women who were abused and all these other things and she's like that's great. But you do realize that you just built this out of money. You didn't really build yeah. this out of your want for to do good by the people. You just did it to, just out of money and stuff like that. And it's just and, – and again, it just brings a whole new level of substanceless that we saw in Oliver Queen where it's like, come on, man. He's like, you know what? She's right. I'm going back to my roots and I'm going to you know, I'm gonna be this man. I'm going to be this full substance. All my actions are going to have substance behind them and not just money, you know? And then the rug gets pulled out from under him, which is so amazing when you when you finally see that he's oh, in the yeah. corner and then all of a sudden, bam, it happens. So, I mean, I can't wait. 
for I mean I know that we look forward to the Fourth of July because you know it gives people a long weekend and stuff like that and get together with family and friends and barbecues. I can't wait until July the sixth because oh, that's yeah. when we get our hands on Green Arrow number two at the local shops and digital retailers. It's one of those things you know we talk all the time about how I need issue two now. No. I need issue two yesterday. Yeah. I want this issue so bad <laughs> I after need, what happened. I need issue two after I was done reading issue one, you know? I mean, uh, and screw, <laughs> screw the sports almanac. I'm getting in the DeLorean and getting right <laughs> <out> number two. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, come on. So, I mean, look, look really for quick, that. Really, really quick, though, and before we, we close out the show, you mentioned the DeLorean. So, like, if you could go back in time – and just tell, like, younger you, this is coming. This Green Arrow is coming. What do you think younger you's reaction would be? Oh, God, he'd be so happy because Green Arrow's always been one of those. You know, people forget the Green Arrow was kind of like Aquaman for a while. You know, he had the yeah. glove arrows and stuff like that, and he was easy to make fun of. And it was easy to push him to the side. I mean, I know that they had ongoing Green Arrow series sometimes. And sometimes it was good, sometimes it wasn't. But you know, you you wanted it to reach that certain pinnacle. And I don't even care what the reason is. To know that this is what we have now, and this is what we'd have to look forward to. I mean, it would ju- it would just be joyous because he's he's that Robin Hood mentality, like he mentioned, getting back to that and getting back to telling not just a Green Arrow story, but an Oliver Queen story. I'm just so excited, man. Not just that, but really quickly, just a Green Arrow story with, and as he said, he wants to build up that rogues gallery. He wants to make, you know, such great villains and, and a great villain as well. Which is going to be great. I mean, I know that we've got villains like Komodo and stuff like that. Right, but, but yeah. he wants to, like, say, you know what? He's like, it's been like Luster. And we need more. We need yeah. more. And I'm glad that he's doing that. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of a downgrade podcast. Again, thanks to Benjamin Percy and DC Comics uh, just for this whole rebirth initiative and being a part of it. Benjamin, it's just amazing stuff, amazing things that you're doing. Again, go hit him up on social media. And then also, hey, if you want to see more of us on social media, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash downnerdy. We're also on Twitter at downnerdy757. I'm at Merck. With one arm, the one is spelled out, Mr. Witham. I'm a James Ace Witham. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. You want to get information on all this stuff, though? Really easy. Go to downandnerdypodcast.com. You can find out everything we've talked about on this week's show. If you just happen to catch just the interview portion or a little bit later on, it'll tell you on the This Week section, you know, what we talked about for what we're reading and stuff like that. Also, get access to all of our past shows, interviews. You can find stuff from our Amazon store. You want to buy the back issues of Green Arrow that you've missed? You could do that right on our website. That's downandnerdypodcast.com. I leave with the same words and phrase I do every week. Price safe comic reading, always bagging board your comics.